Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hey, Ray, today we are going to be discussing an episode that you've been kind of honey badgering me about a little bit. You've been asking me to watch this little show. I I don't know what you're talking about. And I finally got around to doing it. And while it is truish in the TV version, the importance of the reality is so great that it is actually worth talking about because Rock and Roll Direction changed because of this meeting that had, had, had to happen. Right now, 100% of our audience is going, what the fuck are they talking about? For the last couple months, I've been haranguing Marcus to get around to watching when Bowie met Bowling on Showtime. Now, we got you to find it, and it found you. I think there's a little bit of that in there, too, because totally. for anybody who loves these two guys, you got to see this movie. And it's true-ish, like you said. So you got around to watching it, Mm -hmm. and I watched it again and again because I just can't get enough of it, really, to get the message of it is really crazy. And we should probably go back and start at the root of it. But first, let's thank our sponsors, Boldfoot Socks at boldfoot.com. Don't forget, you can save 15% by entering the code HISTORY15 at boldfoot.com. And we're also brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewery, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. We really start with this show, Marcus, Urban Myths, it's called. And they have like a subcategory there called True-ish Stories. I can't speak to everything they do, but on this matter, it appears that what they did was find the premise to be true and then fictionalize it to make it more fun interesting or even after sitting around doing a script writing session of spitballing like what would these two characters actually say and do while they were hanging out together for an afternoon and that's the whole premise right it seems to be but there were a few things in there that kind of caught me off guard and it seemed that they were both getting scammed by the same guy or hosed by the same sleazy guy at the same time okay The one inaccuracy that bothered me throughout the entire thing was the fact that Mark Bolin in Truish Stories was taller than David Bowie when the reality (laughs) is Mark Bolin was 5'5", David Bowie was 5'10", so that just really irked me throughout it. So it took me a little while to cut through that to pay attention, but I did watch it a second time. You can tell they did their research because the conversation seems to be based on the types of personalities that they were at that time. 
And Bolin was always very sure of himself. Even as a wee little lad, he felt that he was a star child with special powers. So he That's that. because, as he told Bowie, he had sex when he was nine. Yes, that was <laughs> wild. And Bowie was like, huh? In addition to your point, Marcus, I want to add that there has been some backlash or question about uh, Jack Whitehall playing Bolin. He is a comedian, and he does it very well, by the way. He plays it with a little camp and a little flavor, but some people weren't crazy about that. And they also question Luke Treadway as Bowie, but I think both of them kind of fit in there with the script. By the way, the script is very creative and mm-hmm. takes a few liberties, which I quite enjoy, which we're mm-hmm. going to go through as we get further into this thing. And it brings in the manager. You mentioned they both got fleeced by a guy named Leslie Kahn. How funny that a guy named Kahn would uh, be taking advantage of musicians. And I think we figured it out that Leslie was the manager before Lawrence Myers and way before Tony DeFreeze, which is referenced in a lot of it. Let's talk about the characters. We mentioned, of course, David Jones and Mark Feld. And the third character who's there at the beginning is the manager, Leslie Kahn, played by actor Adrian Edmondson. The thing that really stood out to me, and I don't know how accurate it is, was the songwriting credit thing, because you see when musicians, artists, bands are in their early days and they don't know the game, that is when they're most likely or most susceptible to being fleeced. And that naivete obviously caught up with them. It's interesting to see that type of uh, fleecing firsthand. And who knows how it happened. A quick flare from the research department showing Leslie Kahn as the writer of record on David Bowie's single, Liza Jane. How long did you think you were going to get away with this, by the way? Get away with what? Written by L. Kahn. Well? If you didn't write Liza Jane. <laughs> I think you're fine. That's the reefer doobies talking. Um, who's Liza Jane, then? A bird. Describe her. Oh, she's got uh, legs up to here. She's got a torso up to here. A, a, a neck. Up to here. That's her, yeah. It's my song. All right, look, look I admit that there was a small clerical error by which it appears I've acquired all the rights to the song in perpetuity. Good job we didn't make any money then, eh? Absolutely, David. I mean, I would hate for a small typo to ruin our whole relationship. Yeah, just imagine if I couldn't trust you. Oh, God forbid. Uh, It was a publishing mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But he was always looking to make that buck, and there were a lot of managers that that's what they were about, and he kept complaining to David how much money he was losing on him. I don't mind all that. Just paint my office. I need something. And he had arranged for Feld to come and help him not knowing that he was putting together two of these burgeoning superstars who were going to become fast friends despite their initial discord and spending the day together painting his office. Well, we'll talk about the full adventure when we get into it in the second half of this episode. But the premise is great and the writing is really good. They have some very clever lines, some banter that is just classic, what you might hear David and Mark trade. Yeah, definitely. The sarcasm, the wit, the British humor, so fantastic. It really does 
paint a light picture and my guess is that first meeting in reality was probably pretty light and pretty casual with a few little barbs thrown or little jabs but not done in a mean way thrown back at each other to test each other out and then I think they found that common ground as they spoke more and more it's silly and (laughs) it is my guess is something silly happened along those lines as well A great review of the project says, slowly but surely, they strike up a rapport over their love of the blues. There's one point where he breaks Bowie's balls and calls him, what, Blind Davy McTell or something. And they even have kind of like a a little bit of a a wrestling match there. And they said there was elements of homoerotic conflict, like Alan Bates and Oliver Reed and women in love, but with their clothes on. And you can see that the two of them, after having kind of a standoffish start to their afternoon painting or not painting sanding and not sanding they end up hanging out together and working on this and by the end it's like yep i think we're going to be mates and off we go it's kind of cool very cool well you know this wasn't the very beginning for david jones or david bowie he'd started with a band called the conrads right they played around they started to get uh, you know advanced a little bit people started to know who they were and a friend of a friend tried to turn them on and uh, get them involved with somebody who was an entrepreneur uh, to do for them what brian epstein had done for the beatles along the way somehow they got passed down the line to dick james who was a giant figure in british rock and roll times as far as a manager in those days his partner was Leslie Kahn, and that's how Bowie got hooked up with Leslie. So, you know, David was always changing, and he had Liza Jane, and it was credited to Davy Jones with the King Bees, his new band, and it wasn't a success again. And he liked to play those Helen Wolf and Willie Dixon covers because he loved the blues. So it wasn't like he'd had no experience. He just hadn't clicked yet. It's that early period that so many artists experience. And in regard to Mark Feld, I think it was even earlier for him. He was really just finding his way into what would be a much more explosive beginning, right? Starting in 1967 with the first Tyrannosaurus Rex album. That pre-T-Rex stuff was very hippie, flower-childy, lovey-dovey. And Mm. in a weird way, going all the way ahead to Andrew Wood, that love rock thing is the thing that unites those two because they were both very much into love rock and they were both showmen and they both loved to share that love rock. And, And you see that right away with Mark Feld and his strong personality coming right out of the gate in that show. Mark stayed. Feld became Bowling. Jones became Bowie. But it all started there in that manager's office when they met one day, all the way back what, 1964 is the estimate. And you know, they had a lifelong friendship, but they had their on and off periods and towards what was the end of Bowling's life, he and Bowie actually jammed together about a week before the crash that took his life. That must have been strange for David. I'm sure it was because obviously they had started something and from what we know of David Bowie's personality, he sure the hell wanted to finish whatever he had started and he couldn't. And he lost a friend at the same time, somebody he cared about very deeply and somebody he was tied to from his early days in the business. He was there to support a friend who had just gotten a shot at doing a TV show called Mark. So... David, 
in Mark, back to the beginning and all the way almost to the very end for Mark Bowen. I'm not going to Carnaby Street right now, but I do feel like going down to York Road in Hatboro and having a cold one, a crooked eye. What do you say we do that and get back with more about this amazing little fun, truish story about the time when Bowie met Bolin? Sounds good. That is what's next on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Hey, folks, if you haven't checked out Boldfoot Socks yet, go to their website and do it today, boldfoot.com. And if you like what you see and you want to place an order, you can save 15% on us by entering the code HISTORY15 in the discount box. Now, Marcus, you've had some great personal experience wearing your Boldfoot socks. That is correct, Ray. I am an active cyclist. After hearing Josh tell us about his experience running a race in the desert in his bold foot socks. I had to give it a try on the bike, and they held really well. My feet didn't feel funky afterward, and after my spin class, my feet felt great. Not all wet and yucky. Wet and yucky, bad. Feeling bold, good. (laughs) Go to boldfoot.com and check out all the styles, and they've got a wide variety of styles, no matter what your mood is about your socks and uh, colors, designs. It all fits into what you want out of a sock that holds up, and they definitely give you that support you need. I know from the times I've worn mine. Make sure you go to boldfoot.com and use the code HISTORY15 to get 15% off of your first order. Look. They're your feet. Be bold. When you get thirsty, you need a beverage that you can count on, a beverage that will satisfy that thirst. And if you're a beer lover like me, and I know you are too, Marcus, nothing tops the fresh brews at Crooked Eye Brewery. They make the brews right there. You can actually look in the window of the brew room and see the brew being made. And a lot of other things are happening uh, on weeknights, various things, including Thursday trivia, uh, the Wednesday blues jam. They also have open mic night, the first, third, and fifth Mondays of every month, if you get that lucky fifth Monday. I can't do math when I'm a crooked eye. Not if I have, like, (laughs) one crooked eye PA, I can tell you that. And open mic Mondays now alternates with Name That Song. Always something fun going on there. We're talking about Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. And, of course, in Delco at Jamie's House of Music. And in Horsham, too, at Horsham Raceway. Pouring the cure for what ails you in Hapro since 2014. We'll see you at Crooked Eye. Ray, now that we have been uh, recharged and refreshed and have our new walking socks on, I say we consider (laughs) heading over to the bins and checking out the clothing offerings. Might find some glam dandy attire. 
I'm learning more about this all the time and the fact that that's what a lot of people did back in the 60s and I guess before and since uh, in the bins along Carnaby because of the cost of repairing or replacing a zipper or something on a pair of pants that might be a couple hundred dollars. Well, somebody who's willing to do that or knows how to repair the tear in the leg, right, can fix these things up and make them all work and make it part of their fashionable attire. And in those days, you wanted to dress like a dandy, which is dress it up, dress it up any way you could, make it your own, make it stylish. And if you could also make it look like it was from Carnaby Street while not spending for Carnaby Street, it'd be all the better. During those times, things were tough economically, so if the kids could find any way to look good and picking through those bins gave them a chance to look good at very low cost, mostly time, that works. And on some level, that's kind of what goes on with thrift stores and things like that all over, really. And people tend to get interested in clothes of the past as well, some of the designs of the past, and then they tie it into their persona and their character and their music moving forward acquiring the things that they're attracted to or that are attracted to them as the case may sometimes be before we go too much further marcus i want to congratulate jim o'hanlon who directed this film for what he did here because he did take part truth and part legend and then massage the two together with a great script writing team i don't really know i don't have it at my fingertips who wrote this but it's good stuff and it flows really well if you're watching because it's not long right it's an interesting way to look at history and add a bit of fun to it and while making it clear that it is a true ish story they're taking the premise and making it fun it's entertaining they were both entertaining characters so how could you not make something entertaining well, I- The story starts with David listening to Liza Jane on 45 and smoking. And then Leslie Kahn stumbles into the office with boxes of records saying, I found a buyer. David! David! And David goes, HMV? And he says, no, basically a man who makes clay pigeon machines needs them for the town fair. Something to shoot at, basically. David looks crestfallen, and that's when he notices looking at one of them. Then Leslie Kahn's name is on there as a songwriter. Like, what the hell? Yeah, and then he tried to explain it as some sort of clerical error, which was a load of crap and just totally shady. Oh, my God. Bowie spots... That dapper-looking dude crossing the street, Mark Feld, on his way up to Khan's office. And meanwhile, he's just going on, Leslie is, about how, David, oh, I spend so much money on you, but I don't mind. I'm just not making anything back, and la, 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 la. So he's getting around to softening him up so that when Feld gets there, he can tell them both. I need you to paint this office for me. So they got to, you know, clear the walls. They got to sand it down. And then they got to paint the whole thing. Presumably only once, but you never know. That's kind of the whole premise, the setup for these two meeting. Now, I don't know that that's how Khan got them in the same office. But whatever it really was, 
this is a great way to run it as a film. David's talking about how this old blues song, House of the Rising Sun, is going to be reworked in a new way and turn it into his big hit. It's going to be his breakout. There is a house in New Orleans They call the rising sun It's been the ruin of many and I am only one. While he's talking, Mark Feld stumbles into the office, kind of stumbles up to meet this Davy Jones. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. He goes, take an old folk song like House of the Rising Sun. My friend, this bloke, George, thought, what if you put some drums under it? Like maybe some reverby guitar. Down, down, down. Down, 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 down. It's heavy, it's sexy, it's... The Animals. It's what? The Animals released that song, literally last week. <laughs> what, are you winding me up? I'm not. I guarantee you, someone will be playing it right now. Bollocks. Speaking of Davy Jones, well, there's banter back and forth, Marcus, and Feld is basically mocking Jones pretty profusely. He was kind of asking him why he calls himself Davy Jones. He goes, why does everybody always say that? And he makes the monkeys joke, you know, and I think at some point, it might even be then that Dave is starting to understand that he's going to have to do something else, you know? And then, of course, uh, Bolin asked him about his two colored eyes and if he was born that yes. way or if, you know, he was wearing a contact or something along those lines. And he lies at first and then he tells him the truth. Hey, he just met the guy. He didn't owe him anything to tell him the truth. So good on Bowie for not saying anything right away. Right. But at first he's on guard. But by the end of their conversation, he's telling him what really happened with the girl and a friend and a betrayal. And he played the thing and, you know. So these two are bantering pretty good if we're having just met each other and not really, you know, finding any common ground right away. And that's when Khan kind of pushes his way in and gives them both the what for. I hold your contracts, pay your debts, paint my walls. What's he say? Paint that wall, you longhead gits, you know? <laughs> And Feld laughs at him the whole time with his arms crossed, you know. But he does leave them alone with pails and brushes and, and sandpaper. sandpaper. So they start, okay, I guess we're going to have to do something here. And first thing, Feld says, Your shoes are shit. They're winkle pickers. Exactly. What's a winkle pecker? <laughs> and it's worth noting that the radio is involved as a character because it's just the two of them and the guy who plays Khan, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the kinks blaring out of the radio as they start painting. Bowie's working and getting industrious. Feld stands there and poses a little bit by the window, looking out and doing this. And again, the pointless banter as Feld starts to get into the spirit, you know, takes the jacket off and starts to help. Yeah. 
Yeah, they started sanding together, and it was... Uh, yeah, in rhythm, yeah, right? Yeah, it was like totally like... weird. It was almost like they were writing a song while sanding or something like that. Something musicians would do, though. <laughs> and they start comparing school notes, and they start discussing Bromley. Feld's mocking him and saying stuff like, it's charming there. It feels like Village of the Damned. <laughs> it was like mocking suburbia at that time, the white suburbia. And out of nowhere, he just kind of drops in. My mom is cool. She runs a store on Carnaby. You know, like, and, yeah, she's cool. Well, Marcus, after a series of exchange, some snappy banter, David turns around and it's revealed. The paint is pink. Are they saying something there? I don't know if they were saying something. I did not realize until we started talking that that paint was pink. It looked actually like just a, a Did you a think it was blue? Red. And I thought it was a flat red. Was it red. green? Like a was flat it white? red. Are going to start like a, a controversy red, man. It wasn't pink like my Camp Out for Hunger hat. No, but I wouldn't think that that's the color that a manager, a very stuffy British manager, would paint his office. But I thought it was kind of fun that they threw that in there. And then the whole thing about the nice biscuits, the nice biscuits. Are they nice or are they nice? Pretty All funny. that's going going on while dancing in the streets is playing on the radio that was kind of a cool thing working together and as you would say a nice job by the music supervisor And after that, I really like this little exchange where they're talking about bands and the blues comes up and, you know, Bowie's talking about all the different blues men that he likes. And, and Feld says, you don't have to name every blind blues man from Mississippi. Just say you like the blues. And David talks about how it sends chills up his spine. And Feld right away shouts out to Chet Baker. Well, David favors Mingus and Monk. Maybe this is why I like Bowie so much. I'm a Mingus and Monk guy, too. It seems, while they're talking about the music, that they're almost trying to one-up each other in sophistication and style and class, and you sort of see that competition between I listen to cooler people than you do. Yeah, and it comes down to an exchange that I thought was key in this part of the movie. David says, you're always going to sound like someone. And Boland's retort is, I sound like Mark Feld, mate. They get to talking about the things that really got them excited about music and life, right? And David talks about how he discovered Tutti Frutti by taking his 45 and moving it faster and faster on the family phonograph until he got it to sound like it was supposed to. And Feld blurts out, I had sex when I was nine. <laughs> Just such a weird, random thing to blurt out. And it was really wild to hear them describe David Bowie or having David Bowie describe manually turning the record player fast enough at 45 speed to make tutti fruity sound right since he had a 33 and a third phonograph table and that's what I just was a bizarre yeah. thing and i was like where did they come up with that is that a fact or is that something that the writers made up out of cleverness oh come on 
I'm kidding. <laughs> That's got to be script writing. Oh, it's, it's totally beautiful. script writing, and it's fantastic. And the writers are building to this next little crescendo because they're going through that, and it's this, and then that, and then they try to like you know outdo each other. And the next thing is, who is the first big rock star to you? One, two, three. Cliff Richard. <laughs> He's the English Elvis. He deserves a knighthood. <laughs> That's funny. At that point, though, man, they're like, you know what? Fuck this. We're not painting this wall. I've had nothing but bad luck since the day I saw the cat at my door. So I came into you, sweet lady, answering your mystical call. Crystal ball on the table, showing. Mark goes over and paints a little message as he gets ready to leave. He kind of, you know, goes over to David and says, ah, you know, flips his jacket over his shoulder and says, let's get out of here. And let's go off to the bins of Carnaby Street. Hey, maybe you'll meet my mom. I wonder if she served him dinner that night. <laughs> So as they make their way out and Khan returns, he looks at the message on the wall and walks over to it. And just then they flash the camera on and it says, Love's Mark and David with a little flare underneath. And as the movie ends, Khan is picking up a brush and a roller and painting over their little message in disgust. Fade to black. <laughs> Outstanding. Even though he was disgusted, he kind of had that sarcastic smile or that like snide ass yeah. smile like, I still won. I still won. I got to ask you honestly, brother. When I first started bugging you about when Bowie met Bolin, did you ever think it would come down to us doing this episode the way it came out? Not at all. The importance of their meeting in real life rock and roll, the way they played ideas off of each other and competed with each other to be better at what they do, created developments in musical style that we had not seen or heard at that point. Because of those offerings, a cheeky look at what happened between two Brits who had cheeky senses of humor and big egos, as well as a British society that has a pretty cheeky sense of humor. It was well done, and it was a smart way to uh, maybe take a look at how that meeting could have happened. Just a reminder that the end result of all this is Ziggy and what he looked like, his look, which started, by the way, all of that with Mark Bowen's look on television at the beginning of the period where they changed from Tyrannosaurus to T-Rex. And he was seen on television with glam makeup, as you might call it, or I believe you have. And that really set the tone. And those two constantly, I would say, traded tips and competed little bits with each other and did neat stuff to not outdo, but maybe outdo each other. One final question about the... Uh truest story. Was it Mark Bolin who painted the lightning bolt across David Bowie's face in light 
pink at the end. And That's it, right. I forgot to mention I'm like, that. Oh yeah, because I saw it was that by like, accident, man. Ac- Sorry. Hold on. Accident as he holds up the quote signs. Accident. Wink, wink. Yes. I don't do those quote signs anymore. Yeah, they're finishing up, and he kind of swings the brush as he moves in to take a look, and he goes, "Oh, sorry." And he pulls up, and there's that swatch like across his face <laughs> that, that uh, he would use on his own makeup later. It's kind of one of those funny moments, man. Yeah. Lots of them, though. Very many cheeky moments and great sense of humor. Kudos to the writers for doing an interpretation of what happened really well. Hey, first off, don't forget you can be in touch about this or any episode of the podcast at imbalancehistory at gmail.com. Our email address, our website, imbalancehistory.com. It's not only got all the episodes, it's also got all kinds of blogs and other stuff that we've done. We're on social media, of course, on Facebook and on Twitter at Imbalanced Histo and on Instagram, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is a product of Dark Doc Media and a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Good fun, buddy. Always is, but this is one of those unexpectedly fun episodes. So thanks for going along with me a little bit and indulging the madness. Hey, thank you for uh, badgering me a little bit. It, again, takes a fun look at an important part of rock and roll history. I love the truish aspect of it. True-ish. Ish. Till the next time we get together to do this podcast, I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. This is the Imbalance History-ish of rock and roll. Sonic has something delicious for you. Hey, announcer guy, that's your cue. Try the new Sonic Steak and Bacon Grilled Cheese. Savory steak mixed with grilled onions topped with crispy bacon and melty American cheese, plus creamy mayo and tangy barbecue sauce. Or try it spicy with zesty cheese sauce and jalapenos. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm definitely craving that previously mentioned thing. Sonic Steak and Bacon Grilled Cheese. Mmm, Sonic. Limited time only at participating Sonic drive-ins.